We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All systems are good. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Van Vliet! Oh yeah, welcome back to another audio adventure here on Insight. I'm CBV Chris Van Vliet, and if you haven't yet, please take a moment to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's so quick to do it, and I can't even explain to you how much it helps the show. So thank you in advance for that. I am freshly back from Nashville, where we hosted a live episode of Insight with special guest Claudio Castagnoli, who you'll be hearing that interview with him in the next week or so. And that was such a great conversation. It's really the first interview he's done since, one, leaving WWE, and two, becoming Ring of Honor world champion. And it was also so great meeting so many of you in person at StarCast and to be able to shake your hand or give you a hug. And the plan is to do a lot more in-person live interviews. So I'll keep you posted about when the next one is happening because it would be so awesome to spend some time with you. And it was so awesome spending some time with Colin O'Brady on this episode. Colin is a freaking beast. Not only has he climbed Mount Everest twice, he also holds the world record for the Explorer's Grand Slam, which is climbing the highest mountain on each of the seven continents, as well as the North and South Pole. Oh yeah, and he's also the first person to ever complete a solo, unsupported, human-powered crossing of Antarctica. That took him 54 days and 932 miles. And it's Antarctica, so it's like minus 80 degrees with the wind chill. His story is equal parts fascinating and inspiring, and I know you're going to love this. He has a new book out called The 12-Hour Walk that talks about his conquests and also the power of unplugging and spending some time with yourself, just walking without any external distractions. You can find him on Instagram. He's at Colin O'Brady. You can find me at Chris Van Vliet. And take a screenshot of this and tag us. Let us know what you thought of this. I know you're going to love it. Here we go. It's me and Colin O'Brady. Colin, thank you so much for coming on. So great to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me, man. I'm just so fascinated by everything that you've done. And I think it makes me so curious, like with everything you've kind of ticked off your bucket list, is life still interesting to you? <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, just just because you walk across Antarctica solo and summit Everest a couple of times, you know, there, there's still uh, what I love to ask people is, is what's what's their Everest? You know, what what's their goal? What's their dream? That's something I like to ask other people. But I also asked myself that question after I summited Everest the first time. It's not like I was like, oh, I'm going to kick my feet up and do nothing for the rest of my life. You know, it, it's a continual pursuit of uh, the fulfillment, the curiosity, the adventure of life. I uh, was looking at your YouTube page. I love that video at the top of all the adventures you've had in the last like couple of years swimming with the alligators and all this kind of dude there's always stuff right like you, right. you know you know i mean if if everest was quite literally your everest what's your everest now um you know it's funny you know i i, I humbly sit here you know with 10 world records explore a lot of places uh, in adventure and extreme things uh also gone gone deep inside my mind in a lot of different ways 
Um, my new book that just, it's coming out right now called the 12 hour walk. I write, I answer that question at literally the last page of the book. So spoiler alert, but, uh, I answer that question. I, I ask people throughout what's their efforts, you know, how, how do they want to live their best life? What does that look like? And the book is really a prescription for people to get out of their own way, invest one day in themselves, conquer their mind and live their best life. But I answer the question myself at the end. And my answer to that question right now is my next Everest is actually to inspire 10 million people to take this 12 hour walk. Like what this book is, it's a book, it's a book that'll change your life. Um, but it's also a prescription. It's actually a challenge. It's an invitation for you to take one day. We could talk about how I came up with this, all this, but it's simple. It's for anyone, anywhere to take one day, put their phone on airplane mode, walk out their front door and spend 12 hours walking alone in silence. And might sound ridiculous, but in one day I've seen this change people's life, unlock the most powerful mindset they've ever had, make shifts. And look, I know what you're probably thinking, some limiting beliefs are popping up and we'll talk about that, but it uh, it's meant to meet you where you're at. It's like 12 hours of walking, you know, sure that's hard if you're not in super great shape. Um, but take as many breaks as you want, you know, uh, walk for an hour, take a break. My 77 year old, uh, mother-in-law completed her 12 hour walk. And what that looked like for her was she walked one time around her block and then she sat on her front porch, but she maintained the solitude and silence for an hour. And then she did another lap around her block. So the 12 hour walk is even more of an exercise of the mind, the spirit, the perseverance, the grit. And what I like to say, we can unlock a possible mindset an empowered way of thinking that unlocks a life of limitless possibilities. So long answer to your question, Chris, uh, but my excitement, what is getting me fired up right now is to take what I've learned in this world of adventure um, and inspire people to take that adventure, unlock their own life, whatever that looks like, and, and reach the summits of their dreams. The thing though, Colin, is like just putting your phone in airplane mode for 12 hours, that's a huge accomplishment. Like the walking, not even being part of that. Exactly. You know, we live, I mean, look, and this is, it's not a, a vilification of technology overall, right? Like, I love the internet. I love social media. I love, you know, the things that you love as well, you know, internet, Zoom calls, you know, whatever. Like, I like that because it's a way we can be connected to the world. Yeah. But I do feel like we're living in a time where we are constantly bombarded by external stimulus, right? And our phones are buzzing, our notifications, whenever. And it's not to say, hey, after this 12 hour walk, now become a monk. You know, that's not part two, become a monk and delete everything forever. It's actually just saying, like, we do need a reset sometimes. We do need this moment to get to know ourselves. I've asked so many people in researching this book and sharing it with the world, um, you know, what's the longest time in the last five or 10 years where you've spent without any external stimulus? And I define this as, okay, sleeping doesn't count. Anytime there's somebody else in the room you're talking to or you're interacting with someone, that, that resets the clock. Every time you look at your phone, the clock resets. Every time you listen to music, podcast, TV, whatever, any sort of external stimulus resets the clock. And the average, yeah, I'll ask you the question, Chris, but the average answer is like, 30 minutes, maybe, you know, an hour. I mean, like, yeah, I, I went fishing last week and well, I guess I was talking to people. So that doesn't right. count. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's rare. And what I realized is what I, what I have found with the people that have done this walk. And like I said, my goal is to inspire 10 million people, but people are changed on the other side of it because it's a step outside the comfort zone. It's an ex funny enough. It's an accessible step. This costs nothing. You know, yeah. I don't get anything. I don't get like a dollar for every person I inspire to do this. Like I just want to share this with people because it's powerful and it will change your life. And what it is, is that the tools are inside of us. And those external stimuluses are important. There's a chapter in the book about cultivating communities, surrounding yourself with amazing people, having intentionally having that external stimulus to uplift. But knowing yourself, taking a moment to look into your inner thoughts. And I'll tell you what, there might be a few hours in your 12 hours where there's some demons, man. They're definitely will live. You're going some doubt, some fear, some limiting belief. You know, why haven't you achieved what you want? I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I'm not strong enough. What if I fail? What if people criticize me? And the book really breaks down all those common limiting beliefs um, that we all face. You know, even me sitting here with 10 world records, like I bring you in this book to the stories. I bring you into a rowboat in Drake Passage where there's 40 foot swells crashing over my rowboat, something no one's ever done. I bring you to being alone in Antarctica, crossing solo and crying by myself out there so much so that the tears are freezing on my face. Sometimes people look at, oh, you're a New York Times bestselling author. You've done these world records. You might, nothing has gone wrong. And quite possibly the opposite. I have failed so many times. I love to say winners lose the most because that means you're out there trying stuff. Winners lose the most, right? But, you know, failure plus perseverance equals success. And so this is really about the fact that you take a day, you close, put your phone in airplane mode, you take this time in silence, you get to know yourself better. You acknowledge some of those weaknesses, maybe some of those doubts. But as you walk, as you move, what I find when people get back to their front door, they've also 
taking that hard look in the mirror, but also solve some of their own problems because we have so much power and strength inside of ourselves to achieve extraordinary things. It's all in there, but you just got to take the time to take uh, take that risk, put that phone on airplane mode, take, take this journey, take this challenge, and it will certainly be the beginnings of unlocking your best life, I have no doubt. So the impetus for this was like, you know, you crossing Antarctica solo, it's 54 consecutive days, and it was 12 hours for the most part walking every day. So uh, what what was going through your mind during yeah. those 12 hours being unplugged for almost two months? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it starts there, but I'll preface that by saying, but it gets to a place that is way more accessible than going all the way to Antarctica. So yeah, I, uh, you know, I set myself this massive goal um, a few years ago to become the first person in history to cross the entire continent of Antarctica solo. So, of course, that means alone. Unsupported means no resupplies of food or fuel along the way. So whatever you get dropped with off the edge of the continent, that's all you've got the whole time. And so for me, that meant a 375-pound sled that I was pulling behind me, basically full of food and fuel. One of the reasons I was crying, like I mentioned, those early days with the tears yeah. freezing in my face was I couldn't even pull my sled basically a mile. And I'm like, how the hell am I going to pull this 1,000 miles? So I had to fight and battle those demons and then uh unaided or human power which means no kites no dogs nothing to propel you just mono mono you know dragging the sled and people had attempted this over time a guy uh, you know made it 71 days in this expedition once and died just 100 miles from the finish line another really you know famous explorer you know ran out of food and needed to be evacuated from there people kind of said this is on the edges of what's possible mm. um and so I, I attempted it. I, I tried to do my best out there. And what I found is I was going to run out of food. If I didn't, if I took a day off, I was going to run out of food and fuel. If I walked any less than 12 hours per day, I was going to run out of food or fuel. And I was actually turned out. I wasn't just racing history, but I was actually racing this other guy, this badass military British dude named captain Lou Rudd, who kicked my ass in the first week, I will say. Um, but I did catch up to him. And I, I just want to pause you for a second. Yeah. Is that part of the story is so fascinating to me when I've heard you tell this on other podcasts did you guys both know that you were starting the mission, the goal at the same time? It's strangely, no, right up until right before. So basically what happened is him and I, and it's not uncommon in the world of adventure, especially when you're trying to do a world first or a world record that you don't broadcast it to everyone in the world a year before you're doing it. Cause other people are like, Oh, if he's trying it, I'm going to try, you know, that yeah, kind of if he's stuff. doing you know, it in a year, I'm going to do it 10 months right, from now. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so we both went about our preparation quietly, but there's a lot of logistics and complications in Antarctica. It's the most you know remote place in the world. Yeah. And there's a lot of rules, regulations, red tape, whatever. So it turns out there's really like one guy, one company who has a bush plane that can land on the edge of the continent to, to, to land you out there. And since there's like one guy, obviously we both called the same one guy. He, that guy didn't tell the other ones about it each other. And then there's only one season where you can actually do this crossing, which is the Antarctic summer, um, our, our winter in the Northern hemisphere. And what and so, be like uh, minus 25. Yeah. In yeah the summer it's only there? minus 25, minus 30, you know, with a 50 mile per hour wind chill that makes it, you know, 50 mile per hour wind, it gives it, you know, minus 70 wind chill, just casual. Um, summer. But uh, yeah, instead of minus 124 hours of darkness, it's 24 hours of daylight. So yeah, it's still freezing cold. Don't, don't get dissuaded by that. But both Lou and I looked at this expedition and it was pretty, it comes pretty clear. Anyone who looks at it goes like, there's one guy, one plane, one date you yeah. can start, whatever. So the week before we're about to depart, we find out about each other. And then we quickly find out that we're not just doing it at the same time. Like the guy has just double booked the plane and he's like, yeah, you guys are going to sit next to each other in this cargo plane and I'm going to fly you to your starting point and off you go. Wow. So I, before I know it, I'm sitting and this guy is a total badass. We, we really intense competition, although we've become friends in, in the aftermath of all this. Um, he, you know, special, you know, as equivalent of a Navy SEAL in the UK, he's a special forces, like badass military dude, done some incredible projects in Antarctica, highly respected for good reason. Um, and so I'm sitting next to him and it's not like, it's not no longer like, oh, hey, we're, we're racing history. He looks over as a long lineage of British love polar exploration. Americans, there's not as much history there. And he looks over at me. He's like, you know, it should be a Brit that cracks this first. Like, I'm like, what are you doing here, you young whippersnapper? You know, you, know, you shouldn't be down here. And I was pretty intimidated. But we both get dropped off. Funny enough, we decide we're going to get dropped off one mile equidistant from the first waypoint. So we're not standing right next to each other. Sure. So I get out of the plane. But the plane doesn't even take off. It just drives, you know, a minute across the frozen ice. And I see him hop out of the plane. And we kind of wave at each other. It's like that starts a 1,000-mile, two-month-long, head-to-head battle. Um, and... You know, the 12 hours that you mentioned before come came from at first, I thought I could only get, you know, a few hours or eight hours or nine minutes on my limit. Yeah. But eventually I built up to 12 hours in this day when I passed him and I thought, 
well, starting to look at the math and the spreadsheet, my wife back home was going to help me with the details. She's like, you're going to run out of food, fuel, calories, whatever, unless this becomes your new normal. And so for the next, you know, every day since then to the end, 54 days total, yeah. I walk for 12 hours. And I had an intentionally deleted my music, my podcast, pretty much all the external stimulus with a thesis of at first, it's going to suck, which it did, <laughs> but eventually it's going to be better. Meaning I'm going to try to find these places in my mind of flow state of bliss of meditative flow. And I'll tell you what, in those first few days, I was like, man, you're an idiot. That was the stupidest idea ever. <laughs> like, give me a podcast, give me a view seven to distract myself. Were you ever close to going, ah, I'm going to, I'm going to call it. I got I'm out of here. Quite, quite a few times, including literally two hours in when I couldn't pull my sled, I called my wife and I said, I know we call our project the impossible first. I think we named it the right thing. This is for <laughs> sure impossible. As I see Captain Lou disappear up the horizon and I'm crying there. So there were a lot of doubts and a lot of fear. But interestingly enough, as my body declined, I mean, by the end, I had lost so much weight. I couldn't carry enough food to feed myself properly. I was burning 10,000 calories a day. I mean, I was yeah. ribs and a bag of bones and I was roughed up by the end. Um, but my mind got stronger, interestingly enough. As my body got weaker, my mind got stronger. Um, and in the last you know, week or so, and certainly in the last 48 hours, I did this one continuous 33-hour, 77-mile push continuous to make it to the end. And ultimately, you know, I got there first. I, I set the record. I was the first person in history to complete this. But what I found inside this silence and this stillness and this harshness of Antarctica was this deep bliss, this deep fulfillment, this deep connection to purpose, family, energy, love, like just like all of the like high vibe resonance of life. And I thought that I could take that with me forever. You know, I was like, I learned that lesson. Hell yeah. I know how to tap into this. And that gave me a lot of, a lot of strength. And then the following years, a lot of positive things happened wrote a book, New York Times bestseller of my first book, just a lot of positive momentum, did another expedition, you know, thought things going well. And then COVID hits, right? Yeah. COVID hits. And just like the rest of us, I mean, my life, you know, no worse. And probably in a lot of ways, there's a lot of people worse off than me, but like just a scary time, right? March, oh, April, everybody's life just came to like a screeching halt, right? Like everything's canceled. I had an expedition planned Everest canceled, book tour canceled, all the things I had planned canceled. And I'm just looking at the news and it's just getting worse and worse. Like, don't leave your house. People are dying. You know, all this fear, all this anxiety. And, and I fully succumbed to that, man. I was in Oregon where I'm from on the Oregon coast with just my wife and my dog. And like, I remember like a month in my wife looking at me, she's like, you haven't gotten out of your pajamas in three days. You're just sitting here like doom scrolling your phone. Like, you know, it's not really my orientation. We're a pretty optimistic guy, but like depression, anxiety, fear, just like the whole situation, just in a bad funk. And so I say to her, she's like, kind of starting to think through like, when was the last time you felt really filled up when you felt like, you know, peak moment, just good in your body, mind, soul. And I thought, you know, it sounds ridiculous because Antarctica felt like it was trying to kill me every, like the, mm. the, the, the personify Antarctica as this place that's just trying to kill me every single day. But strangely, I was like, the last time I was like, just tapped in was when I was out there. Yeah. And so I said to my wife, I go, okay, this might sound ridiculous. But tomorrow, because I'm willing to try anything at this point to break the cycle of negativity during COVID, I'm going to go for a long walk. In fact, I'm going to go for a 12-hour walk alone in silence like I did in Antarctica. And she just laughs at me because she knows all this crazy shit that I've done over there. She's like, all right, see it, see it sunset, basically. And I go out 20 minutes in, I'm walking on the Oregon coast, and my phone buzzes in my pocket. And I'm like, instinctively pull my phone out of my pocket, who's texting me or whatever. And I kind of stop myself short. And I'm like, I've been scrolling social media, doom scrolling the news, Zoom calling my parents, checking in and think they're okay. Like, what am I? I don't need my phone right now. And so I just like yeah. phone on airplane mode and I commit to it. I just commit in that moment. And it was, it was a profound experience. I came back to my front door on the Oregon coast and my wife, before I even said a word to her, she was like, you're back. You're back. Like you just see it, the shift. And it was true. And so I thought, okay, whatever. I'm the guy who walked across Antarctica. I'm the guy who pulled, you know, whatever, all, you know, physical feats of, you know, endurance and strength. Like maybe this is some ridiculous thing that works for me. But as we all knew during that time, you know, friends, family members, people struggling, right? You call your yeah. buddy and be like, yo, man, like I'm not doing well. Like, I, you know, and so I started just kind of offering this up to people, just kind of saying like, hey, um, this might sound ridiculous, but I tried this thing and it actually like really made a massive shift for me in one day. And people had, you know, the time to do it. So before I knew it, I had all sorts of friends from different backgrounds. And even, like I said, my 77-year-old mother-in-law, like, you know, young, old, you know, 
rich, poor. It's like, oh, you know, every demographic, people trying this thing out. And every single person came back. Like I said, some people walked five miles. Some people walked 50 miles. Some people took a lot of breaks. Some people didn't. But the effect, mm. the silence, the stillness, the commitment to that was the same. And people people are walking out the front door. I'm telling people like, well, if I'm in Manhattan, I can't possibly. No, 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 no. doesn't matter if there's cars driving past you or other people walking the street. You're committing to silence. You're committing to your own silence. You're not talking to everyone that's walking down the street, but you're in silence. You can do this literally anywhere out your front door, big city, small city, trail, road. It doesn't matter. And so this book at its core, it'll excite you. You know, there's a nice review that came out recently that said, you know, whether you're looking Looking for adrenaline seeking storytelling, edge of your seat adventure, or personal development, or a combination of both, there's something in this book for everyone. So it's yeah, not seriously. some academic textbook that kind of is going to boil you to sleep, but it is about this call to action. And it's ultimately about mindset. It's ultimately about the 10 most common limiting beliefs that we all face. Like I said, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. What if I fail? What if people criticize me? And breaking that down and empowering people to what I call a possible mindset. I believe that all of us have this ability and an empowered way of thinking that unlocks a life of limitless possibilities. But don't just read my book and take my word for it. I want you to read my book because I think there's a lot of positivity in there. But take the action. Do yeah. the thing. The 12-hour walk itself is what imprints this. I will tell you, the people that I have known, and my, like I said, my goal is to inspire 10 million people. Chris, hopefully you're one of them, is to when people take this walk, the shift in one day is huge. The shift towards people's left life, this, the people, things people sort out in their brain by taking that day, that silence, that space is hugely, hugely impactful. And I'm just excited to spread that word. I think the thing that's so great about it is it's within reach because I think a lot of people will look at you and you know see all the accomplishments you've had, like walking across Antarctica or climbing the tallest peaks in the world. Or they'll look at someone like Tom Brady with seven Super Bowl wing, rings and they don't see all of everything along the path to get there. They just see the finished product. I love that this is attainable. You could literally start this right now. Your you know minute one of your 12-hour walk could begin right now. Then I also think about the idea of like, well, if you've accomplished that, what else could you accomplish in your life that you're not allowing yourself to do? A hundred percent. And that's the power of the 12-hour walk. It proves to you this inner strength, you know, this, this, what's interesting that I found um, and, and what the book is about. I love what you say about, you know, the, the Tom Brady Super Bowl example. I, I don't consider myself a Tom Brady, that's for sure. Um, but I've, you know, I've had some success. What the book breaks down is I bring you through these rich storytelling that, you know, that the edge of K2 in the middle of winter in Pakistan, where, you know, unfortunately I lost some friends in a climbing accident or this rowboat in the middle of Drake Passage's crazy ocean or, you know, Antarctica solo, various other things. But it's actually me showing you that I have all these same limiting beliefs. That the yeah. stories aren't, and I'm awesome, and I did it. It's like, no, this is me afraid. This is me afraid of failing. This is me, you know, you know, this is me actually failing. This, you know, th like the book comes from a place of vulnerability. That's like, look, man, like we're. I don't care who you are. We're all dealing with this shit, this negative inner dialogue. But yeah. we can rewrite that. We have the power to. And like you said, built as an accessible way of like people. Like, well, I don't know what to do, and I, you know, this is two year long process to sign up. It's like, no. You can make this change today. I promise you, you spend these 12 hours, you invest this one day in yourself, you walk back in that front door, a completely different, stronger, better version of yourself. And I think it's important to point out, like I think that on the outset, people look at a 12-hour walk as like, this is some sort of a fitness challenge. No, this is like a mental health challenge. Totally. I, I say that at the very, I say that at the end of the book, actually, I, I say people like on the surface, like, oh yeah, it's like a marathon. I got train for this. It's like, that's why I say it meets you where you're at. If you're in an ultra marathon shape, you know, you might not get tired and you might go more miles than the next guy, but it's, sure. this is an exercise in the mind. I'm fond of saying the most important muscle any of us has is the six inches between our ears. And I, I use that word muscle for the mind very intentionally because for some reason, we all have this, even if we're not into fitness or working out or whatever, it's like, you're like, yo, you want to get jacked for your summer beach body? You're like, go hit the gym, like lift weights, do the bicep curls, do the, you know, ab work, whatever. Like that, we, we know that just like almost like intuitively, we understand that concept. But it's the same for the mind, but we don't intuitively understand that, which is if you want to strengthen the mind, you got to do the reps, you got to do the bench press, you got to do the bicep curls for the mind, right? And that's what this 12 hour walk is. It's like saying, like, I'll tell you something you probably haven't done recently. Put your phone on airplane mode and listen to your internal thoughts for 12 hours. Like, yo, like, that scares a lot. That's of scary, man. That's scary. You know, it's scary. It's hard. But this is supposed to be a step outside 
of the comfort zone. One, you know, one thing I've realized, you know, I was, I was severely burned in a fire in Thailand in 2008. I was told I would never walk again normally. Um, really, really low moment in my life. And as I go through the book, I tell you about all sorts of setbacks, crying, like I said, crying an article on day one with frozen tears on my face. Like that's a bad, that's a low moment, man. But then I got to the other side or I've accomplished these things after being burned and recovering from this accident. So I realized like the peak arc of life is this scale of one. I think of it as a scale of one to 10. I think of, you know, one being our lowest moments, these, these low moments, the frozen tears, the burn accident, whatever massive setbacks we have. And the 10 being these high highs, these, these accomplishments, these challenges uh, achieved for me, achievements, but also just this fulfillment, you know, the marrying my wife, the day of first child, right? These peak moments. And what she realized is that I realized that the ones that I've had, or excuse me, my tens didn't happen in spite of my ones, but because of my ones, right? Mm-hmm. Like actually all of those peak moments, those high highs are my, because I've had a willingness to take that risk, to step outside of my comfort zone. And I think too often because of the modern conveniences, a lot of people are stuck in what I call the zone of comfortable complacency, this four to six range where it's like, you got a job, like it's fine. It pays the bills, whatever. But like, you know, it's a five, eh, you know, or you're, you're dating someone and like, it's not toxic. It's not abusive. It's not horrible. It's just sort of like, we've been together for a few years. We cohabitate or we co-parent, you know, whatever. It's like, eh, like, it's fine. I don't want to like blow this off. Cause it's like fine. Yeah. People ask me all the time, Colin, are you afraid of dying? All this stuff I've done, are you afraid of dying? I'm like, man, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. But I know you resonate with this, Chris, which is but I'm more afraid of not living, man. I'm more afraid of not living fully. And if living fully means I'm going to experience some ones, I realize allowing myself to experience some ones also opens the door to the 10, the full pendulum swing of the tapestry of life. The 12 hour walk, there are going to be some, maybe, maybe a one, but there certainly might be some two or some three, some tired feet, some negativity in your mind. You're questioning why the hell did I do this stupid 12 hour walk thing? But you get back to your front door. Oh, wait, I accomplished that. I did that. I proved to myself that I could battle against my own limiting beliefs. And look what I've done. I want to tell that to my mom, share that on my social media, talk to somebody about it, share it, share what I learned. Because you allowed yourself to not have another eh, five day. Like, think about the amount of days in the last year that you can't even remember. Like, I don't even know what I did last Tuesday. I just on autopilot went to, you know, did the thing, the to-do list, the whatever. Like, I promise you, you're going to remember this 12-hour walk a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. When you stack those things that are meaningful, you allow that full tapestry of life. You break free of that zone of comfortable complacency. And that, I think, is where the juice of life and growth and depth lives. But I'm fascinated by the idea that we define ourselves by either the things that we've done or the things we haven't done in our life. Like we all know that person who ran one marathon 15 years ago and they're like, well, I ran that one marathon. I'm a marathon runner now. And then you see actual marathon runners who like do this every month. You know, it's like a marathon a month or something like that. And I I love the idea of this, that that this 12 hour walk can be the thing that defines you can also be the jumping off point to all those other things in your life that maybe have been sitting on the back burner for, you know, most of your life. A hundred percent. And, you know, I, we talked about at the top of this, but like that question I love to ask, and it sounds like your mother-in-law recently read the book and was asking herself the same question, you know, what, what, what's her efforts? What's your efforts? And it's a, it's a, it's an easy question, right? It's an easy metaphor of like, what's your big goal? I'll, I'll answer in a couple ways. One is, be having climbed Everest myself, I still have to ask myself that question over and over again. Like we talk, we didn't just climb, like you said, you're not the marathon guy who did the once 15 years ago. Well, I, I did a marathon, you know, whatever. I mean, if I went to marathon. a party and there was someone there who climbed Mount Everest, I'd be pretty fascinated to talk to them. But what's interesting is that iterative nature of that, which is again, where the 12 hour walk meets you. It's a worthy question throughout your life, right? Mm-hmm. What's my next Everest? What's the, what's the next thing that's going to light me up? Not because you're constantly seeking or craving the next thing, the next thing, but really it's like, that's that's a life fully lived of not just also resting on your laurels, right? Not just being like, well, I did it. Now I'm just going to mail it in for the next like 40 years and talk about the good old days, right? Yeah. Um, and I open up this book actually talking about a conversation I had with a guy who was 75, 80 years old, you know, very successful financial guy. And he's still going like, man, what is my efforts? You know, at that, yeah. even at that late stage of life of questioning, you know, do I have regrets or do I not? Can I, is there a way to not live with regrets? What, what still is going to light me up? And that answer, you know, could be make a million dollars or keep save a million lives. If we start that business, it could be learn the piano. It could be spend more time with my kids. Like there's no right answer to that question. 
And that's what's great about the 12-hour walk. It's a solo thing. It allows you to answer that question for yourself. I don't have that answer for you. Chris doesn't have that answer for you. We only have that for ourselves internally. Everest has always been really fascinating to me. And I've heard a lot of people talk about how recently Everest has changed. has become like this, this tourist destination. What is it actually like if you make the commitment that you're going to climb Mount Everest? I hear you're climbing it now with hundreds of other people every single day. So that is uh, unfortunately a misnomer um, that's sort of been passed down based on one picture that got taken um, back in, I think it was 2018 and 2019 um, by a really incredible climber, Nims, who did this incredible uh, world record project over there. Uh, a guy, a friend of mine, he's done some amazing things, but he took a photograph um, and it went viral on the internet. And it was a picture of basically a bunch of people at the towards the summit lined up on this ridge. And what happened that one specific day is a complete anomaly, weird edge case scenario, which is basically Everest can only be climbed in the third or fourth week of May. And that's because 50 weeks out of the year, it's getting battered by the, the jet stream, 100 mile per hour winds on the summit. Right before the monsoon season over there, the jet stream shifts off the mountain. So people sit there for a month or two, planning, preparing, acclimatizing, going up the mountain, and they wait for this weather window. And that weather window usually lasts about a week or 10 days. The typical Everest season now will have 500, 600 climbers on the mountain throughout those two months. And maybe people summit throughout 10 to 12 days. So maybe there's 30 to 40 people on any given day. But on this season in 20, hoping like in, I think it's 2019, it's 18 or 19, um, there was terrible weather and the, the good weather never came. And so all these people were stacked up and it was a perfect mm -hmm. storm. And there was one good day of weather, basically. And so every team on the mountain went at the exact same time. And it caused, you know, it's a tiny little narrow ledge to get to the summit. And it caused a traffic jam. And this guy took a picture of it. And everyone's like, oh, there's a line to get to the summit of Everest. Like, it's like that every single That's day. That's the narrative. Yeah, I know. So first of all, there is um, certainly has it become more commercialized than it was, you know, 20, 30, 50 years ago. hundred percent. Yes. Yes. Um, are there people on that mountain that shouldn't be there? You know, rich business guy from whatever who just wants to, you know, walk around the cocktail party and say he climbed Everest, but didn't really want to train for it. Like, Yes, unfortunately, there is some of that over there. But even that year where that picture was taken, the other 364 days of that year, there was literally nobody on the summit of that mountain. Um, and it's unfortunate that that narrative has been been passed down um, because it is, again, it's totally fine. It's not something you're into, but it's still a very worthy challenge. Um, I've been fortunate to summit twice and I, I actually close out the 12 hour walk about this. I want you to get the books. I won't tell you the whole story, but I did have the opportunity to climb with my wife on, on Mount Everest. Um, and that was a big leap for her. She was not, she's not someone who's a lifelong adventurer, lifelong mountaineer, but she committed to that goal and then quit that goal and then recommitted to that goal. But again, that the whole story plays out um, in the book, but that was a special experience um, to be up there with her and to have that experience and the vulnerability and the intensity of that. But you know, when people say, oh, it's this carnival tourist destination, I don't know what other tourist destinations where you go to where you're walking over dead bodies that have been frozen there for five years. The first that's, day that's a real thing. Yeah. The first day I summited in 2016, three people died that day. Um, when my wife and I were up there, um, we passed numerous frozen dead bodies, you know, up there. You know, the risk, the risks are real, the challenges are real. Um, has it been tamed somewhat since, you know, 1954 when Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay made it to the summit and they were, you know, on the very edges of that without Gore-Tex and the technology and GPS? Yes, of course, it has changed since then. Um, but it is by no means uh, a day hike that is to be taken lightly. That's for sure. Yeah. So if someone has the resources and the money to fly over there and do this, is it possible without training? Like what, what does it look like? No, I mean, most people train a lifetime for it, right? Or most people definitely dedicate a significant um, portion of time. Uh, you know, one, one example would be the shortest time frame that I've really seen this happen in, um, in terms of going from no mountaineering to summiting is a couple of years. Wow. Um, my, my friend, um, you know, Mike Posner, he's a famous uh, pop musician. I took a pill and a beast or whatever. He's a good friend of mine. Um, and he walked across America in 2019. 
And, and got bit was, by a rattlesnake yeah, on the way. Got bit by a rattlesnake on the way. Crazy adventure. And, and yeah. he were buddies. And we would talk while he was walking and he FaceTimed me and stuff like that. And he knew, he knew I'd done my Antarctica crossing. And he said to me at the end of his walk across America, which was super cool. A lot of people followed along. And yeah, crazy story about the rattlesnake. Um, you know, he said, you know, Colin, I've been walking across and he walked on roads, right? He goes, but I've been looking up at the mountains this whole time and realizing I've spent no time in mountains. I'm down here on these roads. Like I want to go up to the top of a mountain and obviously yeah. we're good buddies. And I said, well, if you fly up to Portland after your walk, I'll take you up Mount Hood, which is the tallest mountain in Oregon. It's a mountain I learned to climb on. And it's a great mountain for learning how to mountaineer because it requires ice axe. It requires crampons. It requires some technical proficiency, but I have a high degree of confidence that I can teach somebody, a friend, particularly if they're in reasonably good shape and get you to the top. So you have that big mountain experience. You know, it's not just a day hike, it's not a trail where you just hike in, it's a climb. And so I take him up there and it's just me and Posner at, at sunrise. And he just is just elated. He's just lit up. Talk about a 10 moment for both of us, but his uh, people that follow him on Instagram, just his stoke is so high. Like he was like, oh my God, man, this is freaking amazing. Like I want to, the mountains is incredible. And when we're walking back down, he says, do you think I could climb Everest one day? Essentially the question you asked, you know, it's like, I literally that morning taught him how to put on his crampons, taught him how to use an ice axe, right? He was like, very, very much. I'm a beginner. I don't know any of this, but I got him to the top of his first mountain. And I said, Definitely, man, if you commit to training for it. And, I, and he was like, well, can you train me? And I was like, I, I'm doing this other expedition. I don't have enough time to just sit here and train you. I'd love you know, we'll do some climbs together. But I introduced him to a good buddy of mine named Dr. John, um, who's an amazing climber, summited ever several times. Him and I had done a bunch of projects together. And John's also an incredible um, you know, guide for people. That's kind of like what his, his job is. He's a professor and a mountain guide. And so I said, you guys should meet didn't expect this to happen, but Posner flies to his house five days later, they climb a mountain in Colorado and very quickly Posner says, I'm putting my music career more or less on hold wow. and I'm going to commit to training for Everest for the next 18 months. And he went all in John and him climbed 80 peaks together. He learned all the things about mountaineering, went on some expeditions. Him and I met up a bunch of other times to climb together. And long story short in on June 1st of 2021, the same day that I got to the summit with my wife, we all went over there on an expedition together. Posner got to the summit of Everest, but that's from that's, you know, 18 months of like putting life on hold and committing and dedicating himself to it. So can it be done in a short period of time? Yes. If you're like really all in on it, but he got his body, his mind, all things right. And he'll even tell you, he's been on a lot of podcasts talking about his story of that. Like it was on the edge of his limits. Like he was, he, you asked me, Hey, Pose, you want to go back up Everest again? He's like, nah, man, like once was like good enough. Like I like, he's just like, never glad i did it don't need to ever do it again um so it's not a day hike that's for sure um but it's it's how many days does it take it's usually a typical expedition lasts two months Um, two months wow months yeah so what people don't realize i think i think there's so many misnomers about this yeah the you you got to go over there so the thing about the human body right is we if i dropped you off on the summit of everest chris right now i had a magic helicopter and drop you off on the summit of everest you would survive for like about a minute before passing out because you're you're sitting at sea level your body's not acclimatized you would feel like there was no oxygen and you'd pass out even if i gave you some supplemental oxygen which you know a large percentage of climbers used you would also probably pass out in five or ten minutes that wouldn't sustain you either because the air is so dense, the way you actually have to climb Everest, even if you're using supplemental oxygen for the summit push, is you have to acclimatize your body. Meaning you start, you know, on this trek to base camp at 7,000 feet and you feel out of breath. And then you climb to 9,000 feet to this little tea hut and you spend a couple of nights and then you climb a little bit higher to 11,000 feet. And slowly your body creates more red blood cells and get used to the more thin air. And then when you actually get to the mountain base camps at 17,000 feet, so that's high. I mean, that's, you know, 3000 feet higher than anything in the lower 48, but you're just at base camp. Now the mountains, 29,000 feet, you know, tall. And so you, you, you keep climbing and what you actually have to do is there's four camps above base camp. You go to camp one and then you actually don't, people don't realize then you climb back down to base camp Then you climb to camp one, camp two, spend a couple of nights at camp two, climb back down to base camp. So your body acclimatizes and you go back down to rest. And so by the time you get to the summit, you've actually gone up and down the lower parts of this mountain and the technical terrain, the crevasses and the, all the dangerous elements of it multiple times. And then you're finally ready to get your body ready to go touch 29,000 feet for Man. just a few minutes. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate 
isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What does your morning routine look like? Because I don't think you get to where you're at doing what you're doing if you just wake up and kind of just go about your day. Nilly willy, willy nilly. <laughs> oh, it's a great question. You know, I, I, uh, as many people have said, and certainly lots of podcasts, and you know, the, the morning is a time of day that I think we can own the best, right? It's, it's kind of before whatever is going to pull you in a million direct this email, this thing comes in, this responsibility, this, that, the other thing. Um, my, mine has evolved over time and it hasn't been like a constant for 10 years by any means, but I've always taken advantage of the mornings. I'm not a coffee guy, so I don't, I don't do any caffeine. Um, but, uh, I usually try to move my body, you know, move my body first thing, you know, some sort of workout, even if it's, you know, even if it's just like a 30 minute, you know, even sometimes that's just walking my dog, you know, just getting up and kind of moving my body. I, I I'm guilty of not doing this often, but I try part of my routine routine is to not look at the phone first thing, right. Just like allow myself to wake up, move the body. Um, and then I, I always have a, a smoothie, uh, and some greens every single day just to get that hydration and food. in. so for me, it's pretty simple. The other part of my life that has been somewhat of a constant, definitely an important part of my life, um, has, has often happened in the mornings, but not always, um, is meditation. You know, meditation has been an important practice uh, for me. I have uh, about 10, 11 years ago when I was racing triathlon professionally, um, just after recovering from this burn accident, I was racing triathlon professionally and I was just kind of starting out that path in my life. And this girl, she comes to um, one of my races, a woman, I should say, she was my buddy's wife. They just got married, Turkish woman. And she had never been to a professional sporting event before. She's like, I'm not really into sports, but she came because my buddy was coming to watch me do this race. And so they watched the whole triathlon race, obviously the blood and the sweat and the, you know, the exhaustion on your face and collapsing at the finish line. And she just says to me at the finish line, that was really cool to watch. She's like, you obviously swim, bike and run a ton. What are you doing to train your mind? Mm. And I, she was just a total earnest, honest question. Cause she figured I must have some like really, you know, whatever. And I was like, honestly, I was embarrassed, man. Like, I felt like I got caught with my pants down. I was like, Oh, I, um, uh, you know, do some visualization. And she was like, wait a second, you're telling me you're doing this and you're not working on the mind. I was like, okay, full vulnerability. I'm not certainly not the level that you might think. Um, what would you suggest? This is, you know, 10, 11 years ago. And she suggests, she goes, you know, I've done these 10 day silent meditation retreats. This Vipassana meditation retreats. And I was like, tell me more. And she goes, yeah, it's no reading, no writing, no eye contact. You're basically in solitude for 10 days and you're meditating 12 hours a day. And I said, well, I haven't meditated a minute in my life, but I'm kind of a, as you can see, probably from some of these stories, I'm kind of a dive head first in the deep edge sort of guy. Right. And she's like, it's completely free to sign up. And I was like, I'm signing up. I'm signing up tomorrow. It was a few months later, right? You know, it actually started, but I went on the website, I signed up and I went and even though I'm so in my body, you know, like, oh, I can walk so far, move my body this, but the hardest thing for me was to sit still. 
right? Sit still and observe my thoughts, observe my own mind. But it was an incredibly powerful practice. In a lot of ways, the 12-hour the walk, certainly I wouldn't have been able to cross Antarctica had I not worked on my mind in this way. And now that derivative of the 12-hour walk, the importance of stillness and silence in our own bodies and minds. But that your, your question was about the morning routine. But to me, that was the, the dive in the deep end. But doing something for 10, out, 10 days in a row Although it's amazing jumpstart, it's an amazing deep immersion. What I'm a big believer in is consistency, man. Like yeah. it's it's that like it's that daily practice. I think you know James Clear does an incredible job talking about this impossible habits, right? It's those one percent atomic habits. Such a Excuse good me, book. Sorry, I said, yeah. I said impossible habits. And topic habits. Um, You're combining your book and his. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, he he he's in a league of his own with that book. It's such an extraordinary work. Um, yeah, right. But he talks about this. That it's like. It's not about some one heroic effort in one moment. It's like, you know, day by day, 1% gains, 1% gains. And I think that those bigger things can kind of shock you into that. But even this 12-hour walk, it's an investment of a day. This one day will change your life. And in the way it might change your life, like I've seen this happen, is it then you're like, oh, what is now the ripple effect of this 1% shift, this 3% shift, this 5% shift that I can make every single day? Because that's the compounding effort. When I summited Everest for the first time in 2016, as part of the Explorers Grand Slam World Record Project I did that year, I um, I took a small pebble from the summit with me and I've carried it around in my pocket for years. And the reason I carried around just as a personal symbol and a personal reminder that even Mount Everest, the biggest, baddest mountain in the world, is actually just a bunch of tiny little pebbles, a bunch of small rocks stacked on top of each other, like millions of steps, tiny little steps leading to the summit. And that's in the same essence as we're talking about here, which is like just a reminder of like, set the big goal, figure out what your Everest is. And I, you know, that is a huge anchor for me, but then now don't get overwhelmed by, oh, the process is so far. It's so hard. I'm never going to reach it. It's like, what can I do today? What 1% thing can I learn about and just get a little bit further to, to master my mind, my body, my soul, to get me 1%, one tenth of 1% closer to actually reaching that summit. And that's how you get there. That's and one it. of the things I want to key in on here that you're, that you're talking about is like, you need to make the commitment that you're actually doing this because it's, you know, without that date circled on your calendar, without actually signing up, without actually putting a deposit down, whatever the thing happens to be, it's so easy to put it off for tomorrow and then next week and then next month, which turns into next year and then turns into next decade. I call that, I call that one day. Oh yeah. Yeah. One day, mm. one day, you know, one day. Um, is, yeah. Uh, is it day one it, or yeah. is it one day? <laughs> Right. And so, and, and even with this 12 hour walk, like it is built to be done any single day. You do this any single day of the week. You can be listening to your podcast and put your phone in airplane mode right now and start it. Right. Um, but I've also built some infrastructure around it to help support this exact thing that, that initial, that inertia to momentum that you need to create by actually signing up. So 12 hourwalkcom you sign up. The first thing I actually is pick your date, just commit to it. It could be any single day, but commit to your date. And then of course, I'm going to send you a few inspirational emails along the way to keep you on track. Well, you said it was going to be this date. So you're a week out, you're five days out, you know, I'm cheering for you. I'm rooting for you to commit to that. And then the other thing I've done, which is, is fun um, in this moment, which is on September 10th, book comes out on August 2nd, but on September 10th, I'm inviting mass participation. You're still doing the walk alone. You're still doing it from your front door or wherever you are, but there are already thousands of people signed up on September 10th doing this walk all around the world. And I've got an app um, that puts your phone in airplane mode, but actually allows you to track yourself. So you know where you've gone, you know how far you've gone. It's into, I've, I've solved that problem for you. It's like, yeah, wait, but I get lost. So I need my phone. Yep. Great. This is going to track you, but your phone's still in airplane mode. You'll know how far you've gone. You won't get lost. So I, I've solved that for you with the 12-hour walk app. But on September 10th, I'm inviting mass participation because it's that accountability. Well, when will I do this? When is this? It's like, if you're struggling, I encourage you to do it on any day. But if you're struggling to pick a day, here's a date for you. I'm going to walk on September 10th. All sorts of people around the world are going to walk on September 10th. Accountability is powerful. And another way that I inspire people to think about accountability, even though this is technically a solo mission, is... Maybe September 10th doesn't work for you, but you got a buddy, a best friend, a, a spouse, a, a neighbor, you know, your sister, brother, whatever. You're like, hey, I want to do this 12 hour walk thing. I need a little bit of accountability. I'm going to call two of my friends and we're all going to look at our calendar and we're going to go, okay, three Saturdays from now, circle it in. We're doing the 12 hour walk. Mm -hmm. And that still means that at 6 a.m. or whenever sunrise is the beginning of your day, 
you text each other and you say, are you at your front door? Yeah, man, I'm at my front door. You at your front door? Yeah, man, I'm at my front door. Okay, cool. Phone's going in airplane mode. And you know, maybe you're meeting up for dinner that night or you're FaceTiming each other, you're connecting, but it's the same thing. You go on a 12-hour walk by yourself, but you're empowered knowing on hour three, hour four, when it's hard, yo, I wonder what my, how my brothers feel. Oh, God, I don't want to give up because like, he's going to ask me how my walk went and I'm going to have to show him my track on my app or whatever that is. And so there's a lot of ways to do this with accountability. And I think that that's important that you point that out, Chris. It's just like that, that is a great motivator. I've been motivated by great training partners, my wife, my mom, you know, people that have my back and having that accountability is huge. So although this is a solo mission, I also think of when I think about the 10 million people doing this, I think about community. I think about like-minded people doing a similar thing at a similar time because they have desire to grow and fulfill um, you know, their wildest dreams. I think so much of this is, you know, people have limiting beliefs. People think that they live within this box that they've created for themselves. Obviously, doing the 12-hour walk is one way of getting out of that. What, what do you think are like three ways in total? We'll use the 12-hour walk as number one, but what are two other ways people can get out of their own head about these limiting beliefs they have for themselves? You know, one of the reasons that, you know, it's certainly not my my own my own term, limiting beliefs. Lots of people have said it, right? Um but the reason I, I, I love that terminology is the word belief. Mm. Like these aren't facts. These aren't truths. These aren't limiting truths about your life. These are limiting beliefs, right? And beliefs can be rewritten. That story can be written. I am such a firm believer that we are the stories that we tell ourselves. We are the stories that we tell ourselves. You get to choose what that story is. And don't get me wrong. I'm sitting alone in my tent in Antarctica. You know, my tent was full of all my angels and demons, all the, hey, Colin, you're an idiot. Why the hell did you ever come out here? It's the worst idea ever. And you got to battle against that um, sometimes. But, you know, you know how do, how do we overwrite them? Yeah, number one, I think the 12-hour walk is a great uh, great way. Hence why I wrote the book about it. Um, but there's all sorts of other ways. It's, it's that... Um, it's like what I said, I'll come back to a little bit of what I said before, which is taking that mind to the gym. And, and, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, Eastern practices like a yoga or like a meditation there, there's moving your body and working out there, there's stretching yourself. But I think it all does come back to committing to something outside of that four and six range, right? That, that four and six range, something that's going to push you outside that comfort zone a little mm -hmm. bit. It can be any number of things. 12 hour walk is one of them. Right. And that is where that is where you you have to dare to take that risk to dare to be uncomfortable and we're talking about this in a physical mental context but there's so many there's an infinite amount of ways to to put this and what might be in my comfort zone might be outside of yours and vice versa right this is a personal thing but i think it is about looking at life in a way the other way is um that i'll say that I, i'm really fond of thinking about is framing the world um around uh, the difference between scarcity and abundance. You know, money is a, a big topic. When I when I pulled my Instagram audience when I was thinking about writing this book, I said, what's the number one thing holding you back from living your best life? And the number one response by far and above is, I don't have enough money. Um, and I'm not saying you don't have to work hard for it, you figure it out, be creative and all this kind of stuff. But there's, you know, there's this couple of these common phrases like, you know, hey, money doesn't grow on trees or, you know, this kind of stuff that just boxes you into being like, I could never have that. That's for other people. Yeah, and money is the root of all evil. Yeah, the root of all evil, you yeah. know, things like that. Right. And the the truth of the matter is when I people look at this stuff and they think, oh, that's really cool. You went to Antarctica and done all these things. That's awesome that you have a trust fund and you can do whatever the hell you want. Like that couldn't be further from the truth, right? Like I, I grew up very poor, didn't have a lot, um, but I had parents that said, you can achieve anything you set your mind to ultimately instilling that possible mindset. And as that relates to the, one of the most common limiting beliefs, money is you could say, when I dreamed up this first world record Explorers Grand Slam project, my wife and I had like no money and it was going to cost 500 grand, 500 grand. Like, like there's like, like pretty much a 0% chance we could pull it off. We're like, well, what do we have? Mm. The scarcity mindset says, I've got a few thousand dollars in the bank and I'm never going to have a half a million dollars to go try this mountaineering project around the world. Like that's just fucking ridiculous, right? <laughs> um, but the abundance mindset says, I don't have this right now, but what assets do I have? They can be anything. It was like, okay, I have an internet connection. I have Google. Um, there's a couple of random people that I know that I could email to ask them if they'd have coffee with me to talk to me about brand sponsorship or marketing, or we wanted to start a nonprofit at this point. We had no idea how to start that. 
The point being is the scarcity mindset tells you all things you can't do. But that shift, that actually just looking in your moment, not trying to sugarcoat it, not trying to say you have more than you don't, but being like, what do I have right now that is an asset towards building towards what I want? And in that sense, it's crazy um, how much abundance that can open up. And this isn't a silver bullet. It's not like a get rich quick like kind of scheme, right? But this is a framing of a mind, of this limiting belief. And as you see that, I mean, what you've created, Chris, all the adventures you've gone on, all the success that you've had, it's from there was a moment in your life where you're like, am I going to live a life like everyone else? Or am I going to look at this life of abundance? What else can I create? What other value can I create out in the world? What other interesting people can I encounter? What other people can I you know, rub shoulders up against that are going to inspire me? Well, who can I inspire likewise? When you start seeing the world that way, it starts generating this energy, this, this effect, this abundance. Um, and some of that abundance, like I said, is defined by money, but that's almost a crude way to think about it. It's just an abundance beyond that abundance of experience, abundance of depth, abundance of fulfillment. And so I think that shift, that demarcation, you know, framing the world and what you don't have or what you aren't in every given moment to what you are, that growth mindset, that abundance mindset is, is a game changer. And, and it's so important to focus on what you do have rather than not fo- you know, focusing on what you don't have. And that's why I start every day and I end every day saying out loud the three things that I'm grateful for. And that's also the question I ask at the end of every single episode. So first of all, like this has been such an amazing, powerful, motivating conversation. So Colin, like, thank you so much for this. I, I think everybody should go out and get the 12-hour walk and then go on a 12-hour walk themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Pick up the book, go to the 12 hour walk, sign up, put the date on your calendar right now. Don't, don't stall. This is the moment, you know, this is that moment where you get to decide abundance or scarcity, limiting belief or a possible mindset. Put that date on your calendar and you're one step further towards actually making positive, impactful change. And like I said, I couldn't be more excited to welcome you into this community, this tribe of, of uh, global adventurers that are willing to take this uh, journey into the mind, body, and soul. Um, what am I grateful for? Gosh, I, yeah, I what feel- are three things you are grateful? Actually, before I ask you that i live in california there's some uh there's some big mountains here what would how high would a mountain have to be for me to have technically climbed a mountain oh i don't know what the technical definition of that is the tallest in california is fourteen thousand three hundred and something mount whitney um that's that's a great climb um i i don't know what the live i i grew up next to this place in portland oregon called mount Tabor. it was like a park but it was technically a, an old volcano it's actually in the city of portland um i only think that's about seven eight hundred feet and i think they call that a mountain so well, i guess I, I i've been to some peaks where there's that you know that thing that yeah the, the yeah plaque. the uh, survey mark exactly yes, well so, so i I, as small divergence, I know we're wrapping up here, but I climbed, I did a world record where I climbed the tallest peak in each of the 50 US states. In, and I did that, the record. I said, what was record. it in Florida, like 300 feet? That's what I was about to say. Is it, So I did it in 21 days. I did all 50 peaks in 21 days. You've got Denali in Alaska, a big badass mountain. You've got Mount Whitney in California. You know, you've got mountains in Wyoming and in Montana, you know, big, hard, challenging, technical mountains. And then you've got Britain Hill in Florida, which is in the panhandle of Florida near the Georgia border. And it's a 350 foot grassy hill next to a parking lot. So if you're in Florida, a mountain looks like that. If you're in Alaska, it looks like Denali. Uh, and, anything in between. So I've seen them all. Um, So so we'll wrap this up. What are three things that you're grateful for in your life right now, Colin? um, I'm just going to go, you know, Rorschach style, what pops in the head first. Um, There's so many things to be grateful for. Um, First and foremost, um, my wife. Um, you know, my name is on the front of these books and my world records and stuff like that, but we've been together for 15 years. We met very young. Um, I inscribed a book that said, Jenna B, the love of my life, the keeper of my memories. I wouldn't be who I am. She's not just my loving wife, but she is co-conspirator, co-dreamer, business partner, you know, just all of the things. And my life is so much better, um, with her in it. Um, second of all, health. Um, you know, I've had ups and downs. I've had injuries. I've been in a wheelchair being told I'll never walk again. Um, and that has instilled a depth of gratitude for every day that I can get up and not that I don't have my aches and pains as I get a little bit older here and there, but, but health, you know, I, I've talked to some of the wealthiest people in the world and they'll tell you, you know, if I have a cold or if I have strep throat or COVID or whatever that is, that doesn't matter that I'm a billion dollars in my bank account. I want to not have a cold. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so i deep, deep, deep gratitude, um, for that. And then I, I'd say, um, God, I could go on and on, but just limiting it to three, the the next thing that popped in my mind, um, 
is community. Um, I, I am blessed with great community um, and great friends. And I think that there is nothing more powerful uh, as you reflect on a life well lived of the people you surround yourself with. And that's not just people who are giving you something, but people that you're supporting and loving through all uh, of the ups and downs, that, that community, that belonging, that friendship, that family. Um, I feel fortunate to have a lot of that in abundance in my life. Three great things. Fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So great. Well, there we go. Colin O'Brady, ladies and gentlemen. How inspiring is he? The stories he has. And the thing I love about people like Colin is that once you see someone accomplish something, that allows our brains to go, oh, that's possible for me too. I'm not necessarily talking about trekking across Antarctica, although it's possible. I mean, you can see Colin's done it. You can see that it is possible, but really anything you want in your life is possible. Take a screenshot. Let us know what really stood out for you. Let us know what you thought of this conversation and tag us so we can share it out as well. Colin is at Colin O'Brady. I am at Chris Van Vliet. And I think this quote from Nelson Mandela says it best. It always seems impossible until it's done. Be great and be grateful. We'll see you on the next one for some more insight. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.